Welcome to our nearest podcast for the holidays with Chairman Marty Oberman with the Surface Transportation Board. On behalf of NEARS, I'm Dennis Wilmot, the President and CEO of Iron Horse Logistics Group, and we're glad to have everyone join us today as we're, we're kind of in the holiday spirit in the, the holiday timeframe in the mid-December when this is broadcasting. So uh, I want to first say thank you to Marty for taking time out of a very busy schedule to stop by our studio, so to speak, and uh, join us for a little conversation. Uh, welcome, Marty. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, just uh, thinking about the holidays, I was thinking about this earlier. What kind of schedule do you have there for the holidays? Do you get any kind of extra break or anything? Well, it's an excellent question. You know, having spent mo many decades up to now in the private sector, I tend not to do any work like most people between Christmas and New Year's, but the government, unless the Congress shuts us down, doesn't shut down. And we still have to be there and on duty, but things happen in the rail industry. It never ends, of course. Uh, I do try to give uh, as many staff as possible a little extra time off beyond the, the usual. We've had a very, very long trying year for our staff in terms of just the demands on our work our workforce. Uh, so I try to be as generous as I can uh, within the restrictions of the federal personnel system, which are many. Yeah. I fight with them probably as much as I fight with the railroad. So it's not too different. Yeah. Well, hopefully you get some time to, uh, to take off and enjoy Christmas and New Year's and all of the things that are going on there. Um, I, I will. Like everybody else, our family comes together around that time so i will take some time yeah good good uh we yeah it's really an interesting time of the year obviously um now when this gets broadcast things might be different but while we're recording it we're still on this precipice of not knowing about whether a railroad strike is going to take place or not uh what is the sense there in washington about that is there any Obviously, nobody wants it. I, I would be, think it's fair to say. Um, well, we've had we have had a recent positive move, and that is the unions, which have uh, so far rejected ratification, have just now agreed to extend their cooling off period so everything coincides in December. So we have time before that cooling part off period ends for the parties to continue to try to work their differences out. And I know that that effort is ongoing with great intensity. So by the time we air this uh, discussion, it may be there's been a solution. Uh, I think many people assume that the Congress would step in and either prevent a strike or end one shortly or a lockout, which is also possible. Uh, but I make no assumption one way or the other because I don't feel I have any great intelligence about predicting what this Congress or any Congress will do. So, uh, yeah. But obviously that avenue is there. It's happened in the past uh, that Congress has stepped in. And so I think people on all sides assume that Congress would do something. What they would do, that's open. That's an open question. Would Congress impose the results 
of the PEB as issued, would they impose the results of the PEB plus the tentative agreements, which were worked out, some of which were ratified, some weren't? Or would the Congress um, change the tentative agreements to add or detract from what uh, the awards have been to, or what the agreements have been for labor? I don't think anybody could predict that at this point. I think one of the questions that I hear a lot now is that, you know, why do we keep coming back to this? Isn't there a better way to do this? So we, we don't have this walking close to a cliff and everybody uh, going crazy before and then suddenly have to rush to some solution as opposed to having a better process that. Well, it's a good question. I have my hands full of being an expert in the Staggers Act. So I'm not an expert in the Railway Labor Act been around for 100 years or so. Uh, overall, I suspect people would say it has generally worked to keep uh, railroads and airlines flowing. Uh, but uh, we may be in a different time, uh, given all of the changes in the labor situation in the railroads, particularly the great reduction in the workforce, which my judgment has contributed to a lot of the tension and strife between management and labor. Uh, if not, maybe even more than contributed, maybe the principal cause for the work-life quality issues, which have been at the heart of these negotiations. Uh, so it, it could be that somebody else is with authority over the Railway Labor Act ought to look at it, but I'm not urging it because I don't know enough about it. Yeah, but you raise a good question anyway. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of 2022. It's been uh, it's been a crazy three years. If you figure 2020 was the COVID year when everything went shut down and then crawled back, and 21 was some amount of recovery, and here we are, 2022, finishing up the year and. And uh, there's a, a ton of things that are still keeping you very busy, obviously, at the Surface Transportation Board. And some things have had a lot of progress and things are still in the hopper being worked. And as we come to the end of the year, it's a good time to give you an opportunity to kind of give us a, a little summary of, of the key things that uh, have happened this year and, and where were we heading into, into 23. Well, it has been a uh, momentous year just from the assignments uh, that have fallen on the on the STB. Uh, the longtime staff that have been with the STB tell me that we haven't seen this kind of activity in a long, long time, decades. Uh, so if you look at the year now in retrospect, uh, we began with hearings on a very large transaction, the CSX Pan Am transaction, which was larger than most uh, in recent years. Uh, we also had a lengthy hearing on reciprocal switching around the same time, an issue which I had hoped to have made much more progress on by this time. And we are making progress and that will, that issue will be moved forward as and it's, it's underway now as we speak, and it will be as when this uh, discussion airs. Uh, so that was the early part of the year. And then we had the service meltdown, or as one Wall Street analyst called it, a service crisis. And I think that that's an accurate statement. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. uh, in the early part of the year, which led to the unusual two-day hearing we had in April, uh, followed by a whole new reporting regime that we issued as a result of those hearings, which is ongoing, and it was recently extended to next May of 2023. So the service meltdown and the service recovery has got a long way to go as the year ends. Uh, and our uh, not only those hearings, but our monitoring the situation and our ongoing interaction with each of the railroads uh, to be kept up to date on their progress or lack thereof uh, has really occupied a great deal of the board's time, the board staff and the board members. Um, so then you add to that the CPKCS merger and all of the hearings we've had on that and the mammoth undertaking it is for staff to under to review that merger before we act on it. Uh, thousands of miles of route have to be analyzed, both from the transportation side and the environmental side. It's a, it's a, a gigantic undertaking. There hasn't been a class one merger of two class one since the 90s, uh, 2000 or so. So it, it has been a an all-encompassing year. It's been a very enlightening year. I'd like to think we've made some progress in grappling with the issues that, that are facing the rail industry. We certainly haven't come up with all the solutions. Uh, and of course, we have a number of rulemakings. Uh, we're right on the cusp of when this program is aired that I hope we will finally have seen action on the pending rules dealing with arbitration and final offer in terms of rape cases. Can't tell you maybe by the time this program's on, we'll know the outcome. I can't tell you as we talk today because we haven't made any final decisions. And of course, I mentioned reciprocal switching, which is still a very high priority. And there are a number of other rulemakings and cases which are pending. But it has been a, a, a momentous year for the board and the, particularly the board staff. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot. I mean, uh, Amtrak, there's a lot of stuff. Oh, I, I completely left out the Gulf Coast. Case. I knew there was something else that took our time. We had the, uh, uh, I'm glad you mentioned it, Dennis. I don't know how it could slip my mind. It's right in front of us, front and center as we're talking. You know, the uh, Amtrak filed a petition a year and a half ago uh, seeking to reinstate service on the Gulf Coast line between uh, New Orleans and Mobile. And they filed the case under a statute which has been on the books for 50 years and never been used before. So it's a whole new ball game for the parties, but also for the board and its staff. Uh, the statute they use requires us to have a hearing that is court-like, uh, uh, actually no real different from a trial in a courtroom with sworn testimony and cross-examination by the parties. What we thought would be a two-day hearing uh, ended up going dragging on for about 11 days last spring and it's not over yet. Uh, so of course that was another challenge for us. <laughs> I don't know how I could have forgotten to mention it. Uh, so yes, we've had a number of unprecedented events this year. And by the way, in the middle of the service crisis, we issued an emergency service order in June. And I think it's the first one in about 10 years involving uh, near catastrophe at one of the major poultry producers. And, in the western part of the country, foster farms, uh, because they could not get their unit trains with feed, animal feed. And they, they were several times on the edge of uh, euthanizing millions of chickens 
And uh, fortunately that did not happen, but we had to step in. Uh, so a number of, of unusual, unprecedented activities at the board this year. Yeah, it's been. Um, I should, I you know, I should add. By the way, when people think about the board. This is the first year that the board had five members. Yeah. Um, that uh, you know, I think uh, Karen Headland joined right at the first of the year, and uh, so we have functioned differently as five people as a board, as an institution and individually, all to the great positive because having five members has fostered a great more ability for board members to communicate and consult with each other one-on-one -on -one, uh, and work out uh, solutions to cases, uh, policy discussions, been very, very constructive. And the group is a terrific group. I've never worked with a more cohesive, uh, constructive group of people, even though we have different views, different backgrounds, some different levels of liberalism or conservatism, but everybody has, has comes to work every day with a very constructive attitude towards solving the industry's issues. And uh, so, you know, I'm blessed with that. You know, I could have a very different group to work with. And I don't know that the board would have been nearly as productive as it has been. Yeah, you you raise an interesting point, the idea that you have had five board members now, and you mentioned that that very heavy workload and a great staff that you have. What is how what is the size of the staff that the that you have there? The size is not enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have uh, uh, my staff may have to correct me somewhere around 125 people on the payroll right now. We have some contractors maybe closer to 130 if you add those. Uh, we, you know, we're the government, so we're limited in what we can offer people. We have really highly uh, trained professionals, of particularly lawyers and economists and, and others too, uh, real industry experts uh, as well who work for us, who could be making far more in the private sector. We're lucky to have them. Uh, but it also is a challenge to attract more people to, to come in. And of course, we have our share of retirements. Uh, so it's a constant struggle to add staff and increase staff, but we're working on it. And uh, we are adding staff. We need to get up to our budget level of about 140, 142%. I would like to get there sooner rather than later. We're trying. We also have a new assignment from the Congress, really, to begin implementing the on-time performance, the new on-time performance rules, hmm. which will require us to either initiate or hear uh, complaints for investigations of, of, of a uh, violation of those on-time performance standards. And we're, we're, we've already created a whole new office, the Officer, Office of Passenger Rail, uh, which ultimately will be staffed with up to 10 people. We're not going to staff it at that level overnight, but we will, I would say, in the next year or two, get there, depending on the level of cases that come in and how fast we can find people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when people think of the STB, they tend to think of the, the, the five commissioners or the five members on the board and forget that there's this large... Uh, group. I mean, you say not enough, but it's still, it's a good sized group. 
and it involves, I mean, a, a lot of attorneys, obviously, a lot of other types of skill sets that are in there. There's technology people, there's the, the people on the advocacy group. So uh, there's a, a wide range of, of uh, folks there and uh, a, a lot well, to and uh, I don't, I'm glad you said that too, because I don't think people, even people who interact with us all the time, and certainly the general public, have any idea of the workload carried by the staff. Everything we do is complicated because we're dealing with a very complex industry that's a network. Everything you do over here affects something over there. And so every case that we get, the small ones and the large ones, require an enormous amount of analysis by staff. So the board, you know, we're kind of the icing on the cake. We see the staff work and then we say yay or nay. We, we do a lot of our own homework as well, but it is based on the uh, ex excellent, unbelievably excellent staff work that we get. Yeah. We could not, we, you, you could not have an STB without the high caliber of staff that we have, it just wouldn't, couldn't and wouldn't function. Uh, well, and you obviously, you, you and some of the other uh, board members are in demand uh, for things like this. And we are. Together. By the way, I should add something that doesn't get discussed very often. I almost never get asked about it, but um, maybe it's implicit, but we don't have a politicized staff. We don't have turnovers from one administration to the other. And um, I think that is really essential because of the uh, continuity of the expertise that's been developed over the years is, is uh, totally uh, required for us to be able to function. Yeah. yeah, and when you think of the, the last, say, 10, 20 years, and now there are five members on the board, but as you say, that hasn't happened in forever. And so now you've got a, a larger group there and you can have some continuity, which is needed because there are so many large, I mean, you've already reviewed these major pressing issues that are going on and, and they're not going away. Um, more to follow, I'm sure. Uh, probably for the average person who is shipping by rail or involved in the rail marketplace, rail service is still the, the number one concern and, and hope that we see improvement. Uh, the different surveys that go out tend to start you know, are reporting that most people are thinking that we're, we're not really gonna see any seismic change, any significant improvement uh, for another several months, we're talking mid-23 or through all of 23 uh, before we see any any kind of significant improvement. Uh, I, I would hope we see improvement by then. Yeah. Uh, it's been a long time since service has fallen. You know, there were service issues even prior to the pandemic, and then they really cratered. Uh, and it is a long, slow process to get back. I mean, when you think about it, I don't think there's any doubt the railroads themselves say it, as well as all other stakeholders, shippers and labor, that the decline in service really stems primarily from the huge cut in rail workforces over the last six, eight, 10 years. Been a decline of about 45,000 workers out of 100 and 
55,000, so close 30, roughly 30%. Uh, the railroads are now in the process of trying to climb out of that chasm that they created themselves. And I, neither I nor anyone else is suggesting that they should hire another 45,000 people. But they need some meaningful number, more workers, they all say so. Uh, and I'm not talking about a goal in my mind of just getting back to where they were just before the pandemic. I'm talking about getting above those levels to a much more robust level of rail service for commodities that are not now being shipped on rail or too many are on truck. Uh, I think we need to grow the entire freight rail network to support the nation's economy. I think having the limited freight nail, uh, network that uh, the class one created for us with all their reduction in, in resources has been a damper on the economy. And it's, uh, we, we could be much stronger. So my goal is that we not only do better over the next few months, but we continue to grow the freight, nail work, freight rail network beyond the levels that sort of where it's traditionally been the last six, eight, 10 years. Yeah, it's unfortunate that the, the capacity for shipping by rail has really little to do with physical capacity. It's being able to operate in a, in a fluid and... In, in I think it's both. I think the principal limitation right now is uh, staff. Just don't have enough people to drive trains and to, and to operate in the yards. But there's also a point where the you know the the physical infrastructure has been cut back over the years. Yards have been closed, obviously, right after uh, the years after the Staggers Act and after the mergers of the 90s. A great amount of double track and sidings were eliminated. Some of those are desperately needed. You know, they're very expensive to put back. Mm -hmm. um, and there are places in the country, that came, we, we saw this uh, in the hearings we held on the Gulf Coast case and on the merger. A lot of those hearings focused on the places in the rail lines at stake where the infrastructure is already inadequate. And so the arguments were saying, well, if you allow the merger, for in Houston, for example, we heard many arguments that if the merger goes through and the number of trains is increased, the local terminal can't handle it. The Gulf Coast case is all about the railroads claiming that adding four passenger trains a day is more than that line can handle. And then you look at, well, why is that? Because they, the, track, the yards are too small. They're building long trains out on the main lines that stop up the main lines, even without passenger service. So there are, and those are just two examples that we happen to have hearings on. There are places all over the country where the physical infrastructure is just too limited. There are places where it's increasing. You know, it's interesting, you know, for example, BN has triple tracked a large parts of its whole Southern Transcon, that's great. But how about all the places that aren't even double tracked? Um, so it's, it's both, Dennis, but the immediate acute need is people. Yeah. Uh, and, and I do think you're absolutely right, the existing physical infrastructure could handle a lot more rail traffic if they just had enough people to make it run fluidly. Yeah, I mean, the goal of that, what has almost become a dirty word, PSR, 
the goal of that was to streamline operations in such a way, the alleged goal was to streamline operations in such a way that effectively it would create more capacity with the same or with fewer people and fewer everything. But obviously that, that didn't quite work out too well. So hopefully, as you say, hopefully things can be restored and improved and service can be can continuously improved. So we, we do get back to and above. I will say this, there isn't the slightest doubt in my mind that service can be improved if the will to improve it is there. Yeah. And I'm waiting to see that. I've heard a lot of talk and I'm waiting to see the delivery. Right. Well, that, that uh, will take us into the end of 2022 and into 2023. Uh, do you expect to see anything new in 2023? Um, that that is just now uh, seeds are planted, things are are coming up now that that will be significant in in the, the next year. Here's what I'm going to say. How I'm going to answer that question. I do expect to see something new in 2023, and I have no idea what that is because a year ago, if you'd asked me what I expected to see in 2022, I I would have said I have no idea. And then look at all the things that happened. Yeah. So I'm sure that new things will happen next year. But specifically, I'm not aware of any mergers or acquisitions uh, wending their way through negotiations, uh, nor am I aware of, you know, we have our hands full in terms of uh, pending rule makings and regulations that were either, you know, come close, we're close to being able to finalize or we're still working on uh, that that will keep us keep our hands full for months and months to come. So right now, I don't know what's going to be new, but I've, I would be stupid if I didn't say I've learned in the last three and a half years that the railroad industry presents us with new unexpected challenges every day. So yeah. there will be problems. I don't know what they are. Or some, sometimes the new, the new things that are interjected into the marketplace are decisions by the surfboard. So some of the things that could happen could, could create new things for the shipping community, the carrier community. I'm thinking of like the reciprocal switching cases and that whole concept, uh, which is, has the potential, depending on where it goes, uh, to be a pretty significant change for everybody. It could be, you know, I don't know what, I don't know, first of all, if the boats are there to enact any rule there's a lot of positive discussion among the board members about moving forward, generally speaking, with the concept. But what it might look like and what a majority of the board members would ultimately vote for, I could not predict. But assuming that we actually enacted a rule which provides some meaningful availability of reciprocal switching, uh, then I agree with you. That will be interesting to see how the industry responds. Uh, you know, there's a lot of hand wringing and wailing by the railroads on one side and a lot of claims by the shippers on the other side that this will, you know, be a great uh, solution to many of their problems. Um, I think that if we enact a loosening, a rule which loosens up the availability of reciprocal switching, no one knows for sure how it will play out. No one knows how many people will ask for it. How many 
competing railroads will actually want to compete for the available business. A lot of cynicism out there that even if we gave everybody the right to reciprocal switching, the competitive railroad wouldn't actually seek to compete. So I think we don't, we don't and won't know how it's going to impact the industry until we enact something. Having said that, it seems likely it will be a, in some ways, uh, a significant change in, in how the industry functions. Yeah. One of the things I've learned when I, when I first got appointed to the board of Metro about nine years ago, you know, I knew even far less about, certainly about railroads than any, almost anything else. People said, well, the one thing to keep in mind is that you're going into a 200 year old industry. What they were really saying is that they do things the way they've been doing them. <laughs> and uh, change often comes slowly. So I think that's part, at least true and significant part, not entirely true. There are changes, but uh, whether people, both shippers and railroads will adapt to any kind of new regime on reciprocal switching is gonna have to wait and see what kind of rule we issue, if any. Yeah, uh, one of the longer term expected changes within the rail industry is eventually to, to see more autonomous power, uh, which could reduce the requirement for crews and, and things of that sort. Uh, does the STB have any involvement uh, in any of those things? I know obviously the FRA does. Well, it's primarily a safety issue. No one has ever come and asked us to approve, you know, a self-guided railroad yet, uh, I suppose. So I haven't thought about whether our regulatory authority would extend to it. I will say this about autonomous railroads. I think we're a long, my own sense is that we're a long way off. You know, the Australian rail regulators were in DC a while back and we got a chance to meet with them. So, I asked them about their autonomous railroad and it's there, it's quite limited. It goes about 240 miles across an extraordinarily sparsely populated territory. And it goes directly from a mine to a port and back. It doesn't really do anything else. It has an uninterrupted uh, route as I understood it. Um, so if you think about how that might be in, uh, utilized in the United States, I don't know that there are too many routes, even across the vast West that you could actually just launch a train with nobody on it and soon it's gonna end up where it's supposed to. It does seem to work in Australia on this one very limited path, but it's kind of a rarefied situation. So, uh, yeah. I don't think we'll see it, Dennis, while you and I are on the planet. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a ways away for sure. Um, well, I, I don't want to take too much more time here. It's it's been really good to chat once again. Um, I'll, I'll ask you two final questions. Let's assume that you are sitting in front of an audience of only carriers. Uh, what would your word be to the railroad carrier group? Uh, well, I do appear in such groups, and so I don't, you don't have to make the assumption. I'll tell you what I 
always say to carriers, and that is you are an essential part of our economy. We couldn't have the United States without you. And we could be a far more robust economy if you would do more and do better. And we want you to do more and do better. So, uh, and to keep in mind that like it or not, one of Congress's mandates to the board and to you is that the public interest has to be taken into account. It's not just profits and shareholders. And so serve the public interest and get rich at the same time. Don't just get rich at the public interest expense. Yeah. And speaking of the public then, uh, so now we have a, a shipper audience. What's your word for the shippers? We're doing the best we can. <laughs> well, a very powerful industry that we're trying to motivate to do a better job serving the shippers. And listen, shippers can, you know, can help. They can be better organized. They can work with railroads to facilitate the service they get. And my impression is that shippers are, would, are, are happy to do that. They want to do that. It helps their business. Um, the one thing that is becoming clearer to me, Dennis, and maybe this is a message to shippers, uh, increasingly, I have the perception that there's too much complacency on both the shippers and railroads sides in, in what we expect of our national rail network. Uh, I think that even for industries, and I've talked to some who could increase their own productivity, their own output, their own profits, if they could get more and better rail service. They've come to accept the railroads with the service that's being provided to them. And they, they adjust their manufacturing capacity accordingly and their output. Um, and I don't blame them. They've got businesses to run. They're not in the business of going out and, and crusading. But I think for those industries who, who could improve their own output and productivity, I'd like to see them be a little more aggressive and agitating with the railroads to do more. Um, and I, I've talked to some industries and I've asked if you had done unlimited rail service or more service than you have, could you increase output? And they say, yes. Uh, we had a report last summer uh, in one of our uh, advisory committee meetings, RETAC, the Rail Energy Advisory Committee meeting, from the ethanol industry that over this past year, uh, various ethanol producers literally had days where their plants were shut down. I think one company had 39 separate days where they literally shut down production because they couldn't get a train of empties to put the ethanol in, you know, it was in their tanks and they couldn't empty their tanks. So they had to turn off the production lines. And they do complain, they talk to us about it, but I, I think as, a, as an interest group, shippers of all kinds should be, not be complacent and say, okay, well, we'll live with, with that's the only service we can get. So that's how we'll gear up our output. They should be pressing for more and better service because that helps all of us. It helps the economy. More output would help put you know, lower inflation. Uh, so we're all in this together. Um, but 
I don't feel as though shippers are generally responsible for their own getting poor service. That's not, we're not blaming the victims here. Yeah. Well, that I think is a wrap. Um, again, want to thank uh, Chairman Marty Overman with the Surface Transportation Board for taking time out here to share a, kind of a wrap up of 2022, how things are looking, where things are heading. A busy, busy year, busy time for the Surface Transportation Board and uh, shared a lot of good things. So I'll just say uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And, uh, and the same to you, Dennis, and to all of the people listening to this program. Thanks you for you and your family. Thanks. See you Thanks. all next year.